Hello and welcome to the History Respawn podcast. This week's podcast is a fuller version of a conversation I recently had with Michael Dylan Foster, a professor of Japanese at University of California, Davis. The video episode version of our conversation is currently available on our YouTube channel. However, this is a longer, fuller conversation where Michael and I chatted about a couple of other aspects of yokai, many of which were actually informed by my reading of his book, The Book of Yokai, which I strongly recommend. What follows is our broader conversation, including the intro and outro to the standard video episode. Before we get into that, let me encourage you to give us a review on iTunes if you're enjoying the podcast, and you should always feel free to get in touch with either myself or Bob on Twitter at History Respawn. Bob and I will be back soon to have another more informative discussion type podcast. Until then, please be sure to have a look for us on the YouTube channel and at historyrespawn.com. Thanks for downloading and listening. We hope to see you soon. Hello and welcome to History Respawned. I'm your host, John Harney. Today we are discussing Team Ninja's Neo, a challenging action game set in turn of the 16th century Japan. The game features plenty of samurai, including some famous names from the period, but adds an interesting twist, including the supernatural at the core of its narrative and its game mechanics. The Japanese supernatural, to be more specific. The game features creatures from what it calls the yokai realm, from giant beasts to human or vaguely human figures. Team Ninja are borrowing heavily here from an existing deep vault of tales and characters in Japanese folklore. I'm joined today by Michael Dylan Foster, professor of Japanese at the University of California, Davis, and I'm looking forward to asking him about these representations in the game. Michael is co-editor of The Folkloresque, Reframing Folklore in a Popular Culture World, available from Utah State University Press. And he's also author of The Book of Yokai from the University of California Press, among other publications. His research focuses on folklore, literature, and popular culture, primarily in Japan. He's interested in how cultural phenomena and beliefs particularly those associated with the supernatural, are articulated through textual and visual media as well as performance, ritual and everyday contexts. So we thought he'd be a great guest. Michael, we're very happy to have you. Welcome. Well, thank you very much, John. I'm really happy to be on on the show. Yeah, it's great. I I was hoping we could start, if it's okay, Michael, just to take a moment. uh, We'll get on to the representations in the game in short order, but just to give you a chance to share with us, what what are yokai? How would you introduce this concept to us? What what is a yokai? What what is the concept? Yokai is a really difficult word to translate into accurate English. It's often translated as monsters or spirits or goblins or uh, something like that. But in if you sort of trace back into the history of, of the Japanese supernatural and these sort of mysterious creatures, they're not only um, creatures, physical embodied uh, animals or, or human-shaped beings, but they're also phenomena. Uh, you know, a strange sound in the woods will would be attributed to something uh, odd, something supernatural, something mysterious. And all those words sort of – all those – phenomena, all those creatures, all those things, all those beings come together in a sort of catch-all word, yokai. The word itself, I should mention, uh, is actually relatively recent in common usage. It, it's been around uh, actually for hundreds of years as a um, sort of a Japanese adaptation of a Chinese uh, set of characters. But as far as being a common term, it's only really uh, come into being about 100, 120 years ago, and even more so as the kind of catch-all term for these things in the last, I'd say, 20, 30 years. 
Um, right. what, what's embodied in that are all sorts of things. Uh, most commonly, they're, they're sort of shape-shifting animals. Uh, famously, the Japanese kitsune or fox is a shape-shifting animal that might turn into a beautiful woman and seduce a man and, and, and kill him. Um, a tanuki, which is a, a raccoon dog, a real animal also turns into all sorts of uh, human-like creatures or other kinds of phenomena. Um, those are very common, but there's also yokai such as the kappa, which is a water creature, um, and there's legends of kappa found out, uh, throughout Japan. Um, it's a water creature that lives in rivers or pools and yanks people and animals into the water. So those are uh, sort of different forms of physical uh, yokai uh, creatures, uh, sort of animals, either real or, or imaginary, uh, that are found in local legends and folk tales throughout Japan. Right, right. And it seems like, you know, from reading your work and also from talking to, from what you just said, it's such a kind of a, a broad category, yeah. almost broad in multiple directions, right? Now, the game kind of has this concept of what it calls the yokai realm. So there's this idea, and they're using it for game mechanics, right? So so this creature comes out of this realm, and it's this visitor from a different realm entirely. And although the game, as it goes on, does other kinds of things, there's this binary idea of kind of this world and the supernatural, and they're almost coming in from the supernatural. But that seems to be a specific thing they've done in-game. It doesn't necessarily reflect... Or at least, I mean, does it reflect part of kind of the okay idea, or is it just a pretty, I suppose, creative interpretation, or or is it a good example of artistic license? I suppose. I think it's actually it's sort of a combination of all those things you just suggested. <laughs> um, it, yokai are they're sort of tricky to place because I think it really depends on the particular time period in which you're you're analyzing. But as a sort of general rule, uh, I like to think of yokai as something that is a little bit outside the flow of everyday life. It's a, something, a strange, unexplainable occurrence that is uh, explained through the notion of yokai. So mm -hmm. um, a very simple example is, um, you know, the, the idea of maybe 100 years ago, 200 years ago, a farmer uh, working in his fields and there's a forest nearby and he hears unexplainably a tree falling in the forest. Um, that might be uh, explained, and there was a, a local yokai called a Tengu Daoshi. Like, um, a Tengu is a, a mountain goblin, and Taoshi mm -hmm. means, or, or Taosu means to knock something down. So that would be, a Tengu has knocked down a tree. So it's a kind <laughs> of um, explanation for something that's otherwise unexplainable. Uh, and it's a little bit outside the flow of everyday life. It's not the kind of thing that occurs every day, but it may not also be all that remarkable. So in one sense, yokai, uh, you can think of there being a yokai realm where these these creatures do this sort of thing and interact with our everyday lives. Uh, I think that's, that's one way of thinking about them. Another uh, related idea, and I think this is actually uh, quite, quite critical for, um, if we look back at a lot of yokai legends and folktales and, and beliefs, uh, often yokai occur in uh, what what uh, we like to call liminal spaces, spaces mm -hmm. that are between and betwixt other spaces. Um, I call it in, in the book, I sort of made up the term the zone of uncertainty to explain that er these areas because there are places like bridges or tunnels or crossroads uh, where anything can happen. There are places where there's a change uh, that's possible. You know, when you go right. over a bridge, you go from one space to another space and the bridge itself is neither in, in neither of those spaces it's it's a between space uh and it's those 
places that are are really quite um, sort of conceptually dangerous. Mm -hmm. And it's no coincidence then, I think, that a lot of yokai uh, appear in those those places between places. And at the same time, they also uh, appear in times between times. So a lot of yokai will appear, uh, in again, in, in legends and, and, and belief uh, systems. They appear uh, not in the middle of the day, although they can, or and not even in the middle of the night, but they'll appear at twilight when you right. no longer tell that the person coming towards you is a human, but he or she may look human, but you're, you're sort of in that zone of uncertainty and you're wondering. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's at times like that that there's uh, vulnerability and danger. Uh, and in a sense that uh, perhaps in the game, in, in Neo, that might be thought of as a, a portal into the world of yokai. That's how they get into our world and how we get into their world is through those, those spaces and those crossroads. That's interesting, Michael, because the way you're talking about yokai, and this is where you should step in and correct me if I'm misinterpreting what you're saying, it almost seems not that they're mundane or anything like that, but almost that um, in this kind of in-betweenness, they're certainly in a kind of a, the word medieval isn't great in Japanese historiography <laughs> anyway, but like in a kind of, a, um, and pre-modern isn't actually much better, but it, you know, it is kind right, of, right. It, it, this certain kind of time when the tales are extremely popular that it's it's almost like, you know, it's it's not an, oh, I'm, I keep correcting myself, which I shouldn't. It's almost like a kind of a regular feature of life or something, as opposed to the game has this very kind of gonzo mm. storyline involving magic stones that protect the Japanese from foreign invasion and everything else. And there's this evil wizard and everything else. But you end up in these big face-offs, lots of which can be determined by the game because the game, this particular genre is designed around fighting bosses, very mm -hmm. large, difficult kind of confrontations. And so you kind of at least I'm a married man with a very demanding job, so I've only gotten so far in the game. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you, you kind of meet um, a, a feminine style kind of figure who clearly looks to take energy from you. There's a giant caterpillar. There's a kind of a, a Japanese version of this, you know, a kind of a, a different animals jumbled into one kind of form. Right. Um, I mean, the game is doing what it's doing. Am I, I guess what I'm asking is, am I wrong to kind of assume almost that one of the things the game is doing is massively exaggerating the sense to which they would have been strange in, in that sense or, or, or Yeah, Yeah, I, th I think you're absolutely right. I think uh, that what the game seems to be doing is, is taking these creatures, these manifestations that were really very localized. Um, They're you know, sort of told in, mm -hmm. in, in local village legends, sometimes in cities, whatever, but, but they weren't these kind of monumentally massive uh, creatures these these large demonic uh, boss like figures that uh that held the key to an entire realm they were much right. more local and sort of I, I don't want to say casual but they they weren't <laughs> quite and, and they were often quite deadly i mean this is not to to play mm -hmm. down uh, some of their negative powers although a lot of them were ambiguous but they weren't necessarily something that uh, you know sort of the the evil boss kind of figure that uh, they seem to appear in in, in the game. I, I think the game has mm. um, maybe one, one sort of facile interpretation of what it's done. It's taking these as uh, characters and monumentalized them in a kind of much more contemporary mm -hmm. uh, uh, Hollywood slash video game 
a big format to make to make right. battles more meaningful in a sense, rather than just getting rid of a minor little uh, troublesome creature. Um, <laughs> if that makes sense. Having said that, I mean, I'm thinking back. There's a, for example, a, a very famous um, uh, yokai related story and a uh, story called Shuten and Doji, um, which uh, has a demon-like figure, an oni, uh, an ogre. Uh, type mm-hmm. of creature that attacks the capital, attacks the in, in the Heian capital, or what what's now called Kyoto, and uh, abducts young women and eats them. So he really is a very demonic figure, and uh, mm-hmm. several great heroes from Japanese history go after him in his mountain lair and eventually cut off his head. and And that became <laughs> a very uh, a wonderful set of um, picture scrolls and and very graphic. Uh, uh, sort of visual representations for the period. Uh, so there was that, that, that aspect existed as well. But for the most part, when we, when we think of yokai, they're, they're on a much smaller scale, I think. Right. It's less sort of consequential and monumental. Right. Personal, maybe. Yeah, I'm fascinated by this kind of uh, the, the categorization idea. I can't help it. It's just so interesting to me uh, in the sense that, you know, early in the game, you, you go on this abandoned boat that Westerners have left behind them and you fight this kind of large ogre style a creature from the yokai realm and you come out and you're greeted by a character who says, oh, and the, the player character is Irish actually for reasons I haven't uncovered <laughs> in the game yet. And you come out and this this Japanese figure says, ah, you know, this man can kill oni, you know. Right. And he uses that word oni as opposed to yokai. I mean, are oni a subcategory of yokai or what's going on there? Yeah, so now that, that's another a tricky question. Um <laughs> you know, uh, as I said, the, the the notion of yokai itself as as a word um, mm-hmm. to get into a little sort of uh, geeky history, uh, it, it had. Ex- Please do, by okay. the way. Please do get into the geeky history. <laughs> well, it had existed for many years, um, but it wasn't really into until the uh, the Meiji period, um, starting um, uh, in late eighteen, well, eighteen Meiji period started in eighteen sixty eight, but in the eighteen eighties, there was a man named Inoue Endio who was a Buddhist priest and an educator and a philosopher, really interested in Western philosophy. And one of the things that he wanted to do was make Japan help make Japan into a modern, uh, a modern nation state, you know, uh, equivalent to to the the nation states of Europe and America. And mm-hmm. in doing that, what he identified superstition as a real problem, as something that was really holding Japan, Japanese development back. And within the notion of superstition, he saw yokai as a, a key element. And so he very consciously went after, and, and by yokai in this case, I, I just mean all sorts of strange local beliefs and supernat- what, what he called superstitious beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, but he uh, very forcefully... Um, went after these and criticized, tried to explain them away with scientific evidence. Uh, so if you heard, for example, as I mentioned before, a tree falling in the forest and no one's there, if you heard that, he would say, well, sometimes trees become weak and they, they fall when, and there may be a wind that's blowing that you didn't notice, that, that sort of thing. He would explain them away, nice. make them mundane. And he's the one who really, for whatever reason, chose to use the word yokai to describe all of these. And he created huh. a a rather complex typology of of yokai, of different forms of uh, you know supernatural or, or unexplainable phenomena versus unex, you know uh, mysterious hybrid creatures versus beings, all sorts of very sort of complicated um, classifications. 
But it was in the 1880s that he did this, and he was uh, at that point he was actually creating a university um, that's now it still exists. Actually, it, it, the name has changed, but it, it's Toyo University in Tokyo, very famous, large university. He was the founder of that university, and and one of the things he taught was uh, he created a field called yokai gaku, which you could translate as <laughs> yokaiology or monsterology, or, uh, and and within that he. So he sort of cemented the term yokai and brought it into the popular imagination of that period and broadened its meanings. Fascinating. Uh, Despite the fact he's kind of a Neil deGrasse Tyson figure who shows up and explains why something right, right. isn't it, actually fun and is easily explicable. Kind of. Right. And, you know, and, and what's funny about him is I think he, he would make a great uh, character in a, in a video game, actually, because he clearly loved yokai. He, he, spent, uh-huh. uh, he would travel around the country and actually sometimes to China. But he would travel around uh, Japan and uh, lecture about yokai and how, you know, they're just superstitions and you shouldn't believe in them and all this. And at the same time, he would be collecting yokai stories from the local uh, community. So he was really kind Mm -hmm. of obsessed with them in in a fascinating way. Fascinating. It's funny, you know, you brought it up as well in terms of it's if not quite ironic, certainly fascinating that this term that the term yokai is coined by this debunker slash super fan, I suppose, is the idea. Um, But you also were talking about almost like a Hollywood kind of stylized thing. And in fact, if you play through the game, you do kind of encounter um, here and there these kind of very smaller yokai figures who whose bone structure seems to allow them to kind of flop around a little bit more. And they're they're clearly aggressive and clearly um, out to get you kind of thing. And they're you know, I've seen this kind of an iteration in various East Asian media before, um, but they're kind of zombie fodder a little bit. Um, and so it's something that interests me about Neo in talking about it. It seems to me to tell us as much about how the Japanese developers of the game are interpreting and recalibrating their present day culture. It's certain. I mean, they're not trying to mm-hmm. present an accurate picture of medieval folklore anyway, right, um, right. or Japanese folklore. But I just that, that intrigues me that the choices that they've made, like the chimera type figure of the Nui, mm-hmm. becomes this large, terrifying thunder beast, right? Right. Um, for example, you know, and and is just a great enemy in a video game, and that's a good enough reason to do it, you know. Right, and and I think that's. I mean, that's what I I find really fascinating about um, video games and and anime and and other sort of popular culture manifestations and expressions of folklore is that uh, you know there's there's no reason they have to uh, uh, stay faithful to you know what was collected as an orally conveyed legend 120 years ago. There's there's no ne- right. necessity to do that. And and in fact, if we if we go back and really look at um, and this is my own theory of one reason yokai are still very much a presence in Japanese cultural life uh, in, in things like anime and video games uh, is because ever since the, the Edo period from you know around 1600 to 1868, um, the period actually um, right after the, the setting of the game, really, um, mm-hmm. they, yokai were used in various different sorts of media. So local yokai from legend would be reproduced in an ukiyo-e um, woodblock print. Um, there were all sorts of, this was the time in which uh, relatively cheap uh, print uh, media um, became popular. The sort of precursor to what we now call manga really started mm-hmm. in the in the late 1700s. Um, I, I think there, there was a form of um, called kibyoshi, which was very popular, um, often comical, often full of puns, often lighthearted, illustrated, uh, 
books, short books. And in those books, um, all sorts of yokai from local communities were uh, exhibited and made into characters. And so you know, whether they were faithful to the original or the earlier version, the folkloric version, is irrelevant. They became popular <laughs> in, uh, in what they were at that time and, and very popular among the readers. And then they morphed into other creatures from there and they took on different personalities. Uh, so that, uh, for example, there was, a, a again, this is a little geeky, but there was a, something called a Mikoshi Nyudo, which was a yokai that was reported in various local communities. With a, uh, You'd meet him in the woods and it looked like a, a monk type figure, a bald headed human figure with, and he would grow very long, his neck and his body would extend. And, and there were very mm. ways of getting past him. That figure, for whatever reason, morphed during the Edo period in these popular culture media into a kind of king of yokai, a leader of yokai. <laughs> and he was paired up with a Dokudo Kubi, which is a long, long-necked woman who was also um, from older <laughs> folklore, but she became a kind of popular culture figure. Right. Um, all this to say that I think that what they're doing in, in Neo is what has often and always been done with folklore and popular culture. The two are really intertwined. Um, and it's really uh, reflecting perhaps a, a more Hollywood sensibility, a more, uh, a more contemporary uh, accessibility and sensibility now. Mm -hmm. and it's not to say it's corrupting anything. It's just changing right. it in a very creative way. Well, that's a key thing. You know, you are the folklorist in the conversation. I think that's this element of authenticity becomes really interesting, right? Right. Uh, in the sense of people, communities develop canons and this kind of thing and decide that, well, that's not the correct way to tell such and such a story. But that seems to not, except for um, the scholar codifying these things in the late 19th century, there's there doesn't seem to be much kind of guardrails in the sense of, well, you can't tell such and such a story. It seems like a very open canvas for storytellers to just come in and take stuff and start using it. Yes, I, I think it is. And I mean, that's one thing. And, and the, the book you mentioned uh, earlier that uh, I edited with actually one of my former uh, graduate students, a guy named Jeffrey Tolbert, uh, is a book called The Folkloresque. And we, we came up with that term, The Folkloresque, to describe just this sort of uh, popular culture usage of uh, folklore and try to make some try to understand um the interplay between the what we often think of two different realms uh, folklore and literature or folklore and film folklore mm -hmm. and video games and of course what we we realize they're very very similar and and that they're all uh, there it's kind of an open license you know uh, a new a you mentioned the new a character earlier mm -hmm. um that same creature uh, which is a kind of hybrid uh, creature made up of different body parts from different kinds of animals. Uh, you know, it's found way back in one form or another. I think in um, the ninth century, I can't remember the first uh, documentation of it. Uh, it. Then it appears again in the tale of Heike, um, uh, a warrior tale much later in its slightly different form. So it's always sort of um, remediated into different forms. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the differences, though, uh, that there is one difference between popular culture manifestations and, and what, what we could call folkloric manifestations, and that's really uh, basically intellectual property law <laughs> in, <laughs> in the sense that, you know, if, if, you, uh, it, if I tell a, a local legend that about a, a new way, for example, that new way is open to anybody's manipulation. Anybody can change it. Anybody can call it their own and, and, and change a story. Right. But if that's 
a, a character in a video game, for example, and you take that character and do something else with it, you, you're subject to copyright um, <laughs> restrictions and that sort of thing. So that, and that, of course, ties into the profit motive of, of popular, many popular culture products and that sort of thing. Uh, right, of course. Uh, but in theory, there, you know, it's it's really a continuum. I think bet- between mm-hmm. these things, I, I often think of it as a kind of Mobius strip. You know, the 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 thing that's in popular culture is really the thing that's in folklore, and it right it looks different, but it's actually the same. You know, right. And it's fascinating as well. You know, uh, fans of video games and people who spend a lot of time with them. This channel is largely, you know founded on the belief that video games are of immense cultural value, you know, and, and that sometimes sometimes results in some defensive conversations among fans of video games, as you say, because there are there are debates about the value of it and everything else. But I think that's what I found interesting playing Neo is that and especially having read some of your work, that yeah, Team Ninja are doing they're they're using this as a sandbox. They're playing with it. They're putting twists on mm-hmm. it. But that's what people have been doing in Japan for centuries and centuries. Exactly. And that's, you know, even if we go, you know, to the most sort of uh, pure, quote unquote, authentic form of, of folkloric storytelling, somebody telling a, a, a folktale or a legend, each iteration, each telling of a folktale or legend has that particular storyteller's uh, particular spin and style and articulation and characterization. Uh, on it, which changes it for the listener, who then goes on to tell it to somebody else. So it's always changing, um, right? You know, I, I mean, the only it, one one difference I think is, you know, in a in a video game, it's uh, the audience is massive in that sense. Mm-hmm. So the audience is getting one particular uh, company's spin, uh, but the audience has the right to change that in any way they want as well. So uh, right, and it, it is it's, it's a constant creativity, I think. Yeah, and where Neo, of course, comes quite interesting is, you know, an international audience. Um, something students often ask me about, like, you know, why is why is the protagonist of this game a, a, a Caucasian Irishman, for example, right. you know? And and that that's kind of a whole other conversation, actually. But you have this international audience for the game, which I think really adds in a fascinating layer to it as well. Yeah, and, and you know, I, was, I mentioned the folkloresque, or this idea earlier, and I think one aspect of that that's quite uh, interesting is to think about it internationally. Um it's very likely, for example, and, and I don't know if this is the case, but with a, a game like Neo, the Japanese um, players um, playing in Japan may look at these yokai, for example, the Nui, and have an immediate understanding that the game makers have manipulated it for this purpose. Mm-hmm. Whereas right. uh, people not uh, as familiar with the the earlier folkloric versions may say, "Oh, this is the folkloric creature of the Nui." Right. And so right. there's a kind of a, a disconnect between um, foreign audiences and and the more indigenous players who uh-huh. are familiar with the background, and creates this whole kind of. Um, you, you kind of shape in your mind, okay, well, this is what Japanese folklore is like. For example, it's binary. Uh, you know, right. these evil right. beings can be invasive or or what have you. You know. Um, it's really interesting. It's, it's something, for example, when I was teaching my students this past January, and uh, we used your book, Michael, the book of yokai, something oh, that you. interested them. Uh, <laughs> it was great. Uh, and actually, I recommend it to people listening. It's, it's, a, it's a great book for, it's a great, very accessible book on the topic. And my students, um, you know, we were talking, you know, so in a class like this, you want to discuss, this is how Confucianism works, right, very right. broadly speaking. And <laughs> these, these are, these are, these are kami cults and this is what happens in the eighth century and so on and so on. And we were all having a great time. And I think they weren't having a hard time visualizing 
you know, almost the more rural um, life of maybe, you know, 1200 AD Japan or something like this. And then, but they really came to life when we started talking about the 20th century, what, what you've referred to in your work as the yokai boom. Mm. And for example, a very, very popular story that all the students really kind of, really got their hooks into was the young woman who travels the streets with the surgical mask over her uh, face. Right, right. Um, which, is, which is something that's very common in East Asia because of pollution and everything else and then reveals that she has a terrible, there, there's terribleness beneath. And and I think that they, I think it's a very gripping story, but I also think the students cottoned onto it in large part because suddenly we were in urban modern settings and right. that was a completely different thing for them to have to deal with, you know? Right, right. And and the, the story you mentioned is um, a story in Japanese called Kuchisake Ona, or the slit-mouthed woman. Uh, and just to iterate the narrative very briefly and, and sort of generally, in, in 1979, it's been uh, right. being a modern story, they've been able to sort of specifically date. Actually, December 1978 was the first appearance, but it was what we would now call an urban legend or a contemporary legend of... Um, uh, story usually told of a, you know, a young child, you know, um, maybe middle school, maybe elementary school, walking home from school, often at twilight, dusk, uh, again, the time when yokai appear. And a woman um, quite frequently described as a 20-something, early 20s, um, fairly attractive woman wearing a surgical mask, a, a, a as you mentioned, a mask that people in Japan, it's not unusual for people today and even in mm-hmm. those days to wear to uh, if they had a cold or to um, prevent pollution from getting in. Uh, but a woman dressed like that walks up to a young child, taps them on the shoulder and says uh, in Japanese, um, basically translated as, am I pretty? And the child, you know, sort of stunned, doesn't really respond. And then the woman pulls off her masks and reveals that her mask and reveals that her mouth is slit from year to year. And she says, even like this, am I pretty? Or even now, am I pretty? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then various things happen depending on the version of the story. But it's a, it's a very creepy, spooky story. And, and supposedly in uh, 1979, first six months or so of 1979, it was uh, told in every prefecture in Japan, children were uh, frightened to go to school. In some places, I haven't been able to trace this um, confirm it definitely, but in some places apparently uh, extra police were added uh, after school hours to, to patrol and keep wow. children safe. Um, and of course, this is a very urban yokai. It's the kind of thing that in you know 150 years ago in a small village might have occurred and become a, a local legend. But this occurred um, often in a city or a suburb. And because it was uh, a time of mass media, it was transmitted uh, through in those days they had something called late night radio that apparently um, often discussed this uh, slit mouth woman phenomenon. There were also a lot of um, you know uh, illustrated magazines and weekly magazines and newspapers and television shows, and it became a huge phenomenon for about six months, and then it sort of died down. But even today, everybody in Japan, uh, you mentioned that too, will know mm-hmm. of that story, and there have been movies made since and that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, so it, so it, it was something that sort of emerged uh, somewhat organically in a very folkloric way through word of mouth and, and rumor, and then very quickly made it in, into the media and very quickly became mediatized in uh, – such a way that the, the actual belief aspects of it fell away and it became a character. She became a, right. a, a known character. 
Yeah, and I, I bring it up because I, I'm so interested in, in what you also mentioned this, you know, the notion of the authorship of the product versus the reception of the product, right? Right. And, and the notion that, so, you know, Japanese creators will play with things either with a very intentional, uh, with, with, with a very clear ambition to do certain things or just with a kind of almost like a freedom, you yeah. know, with yeah. a, a comfort level that then is received also by their audience. And I guess it must be 15 years gone now when there is the big wave of Japanese horror movies that began to become popular in the right. US, in the Western world, and then later somewhere adapted, you know, the Ringu movies famously and everything else. And so I think Westerners had this idea of, you know, the long, dark-haired, uh-huh. um, prepubescent girl getting out of a swimming pool or, or water again showing up, right? Right, right. And so I'm just kind of, I just really am fascinated by how Neo does does similar things and creates similar disparities. And, and, and just, I'm, I'm just fascinated by... It's, it, I guess it, maybe you could better than do it better than I can. I'm, I'm fascinated by just the comfort. I suppose you're in your own culture. You're playing with these ideas. You're changing things, mm-hmm. and I, I, I think that this this is kind of when part of video games coming more quote unquote legitimate is just being around longer, as it were. Um, but I think to see that kind of creativity, right, is, right. Um, I, I just think it's an interesting. It's it's interesting for me to think about Neo. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think. I, I mean, one one way to think of it. I, I've tried to think of uh, how video games and other popular culture um, media will use folklore um, to create something new. And I, one one way to think of it. It's, I don't think it's the only way to think of it. But um, you mentioned, for example, that you know the uh, the Ringu movies and and um, you know this long uh, haired woman coming out of a well and. And and mm-hmm. they're doing exactly what what they're doing to a certain extent is taking motifs from folklore and earlier stories and earlier literature, earlier films. Even they're taking motifs and cobbling them together in a in a slightly different way. So mm-hmm. um, there are, for example, there is old older folklore about um, a woman thrown into a well in Japan. There's an Edo period, a very famous Edo period legend, um, and uh, the idea of of hair. You know, straggly long hair is something that comes up in in all sorts of motifs in Japan, in kabuki plays and and folklore and and all sorts of literature. And again, the notion of the well we mentioned earlier, the the liminality of it, the well itself is a, right. a portal between you know the the world of the land and the world of underground water and whatnot. So there's all these different motifs that are co- being cobbled together into a very um, into a new character. And that I think it's it's that use of older imagery that that has a resonance for the viewers, uh, put into a new package that makes it particularly uh, resonant um, as as a new product, but with a sense of something they can hold on to because they've seen it before. Uh, and I think that this same sort of thing must be happening in Neo as well. I mean, each of those uh, characters, each of the yokai characters. Um, that I've seen just in, in, a, in a, some of the footage has something that looks familiar to people who know about right. yokai. Uh, not everything, not 100%. It's not something you would see in a, an 18th century book, but some aspect of it is familiar. I, uh, you mentioned, for example, the, uh, the, the giant centipede. Um, right. And indeed, you know, the moment I saw that, it, it reminded me of the, the mukade, which is a, a real actually deadly little centipede that's found in, um, or millipede, I'm not sure which, but that's uh, found <laughs> in Japan. 
um, but is also uh, in a giant form comes out in in several uh, very famous legends, uh, particularly around the Kyoto, uh, the Otsu area, and um, so they obviously have, you know, so it was familiar to me in that way, and then it was exciting to see how they had uh, revitalized it and given it added energy and and uh, character in that particular video game form. So one more thing, Michael, before we go, just to return back to this word yokai, and you've already talked to us about it being coined, you know, much later. I'm actually uh, aware of the term yokai as part of a yokai watch series uh-huh. of video games and things like this. And these little things kind of jumping up and little smatterings of, of Japanese pop culture. So I guess what's the state of that word now, as it were? Or what's the more recent history of the word? Oh, yeah, that's that's a great question. I did mention it It really sort of became coined, not not invented, but became a little bit more popular in the 1880s. But uh, after that, it, it was a known word, but it wasn't um, sort of a common everyday word that, that you know, the average person on the street would talk about to describe something mysterious or monstrous. Uh, there were other words that were used. Um, one of the more common was bakemono, uh, which literally means a changing thing. And that, that was used all through mm. the Edo period and, and even into the present, it's still used. Uh, sometimes the word obake, which is a more childish form, but it also means a, a kind of changing thing, um, was used quite commonly. And, and again, still is used. But as a kind of catch-all, almost slightly academic and now more and more popular word, uh, term, the word yokai really had a, a resurgence, I would say, after World War II. Um, in the 1960s and 70s, uh, manga and anime artist uh, by the name of Mizuki Shigeru, who just recently passed away, I think two or three years ago at the age of 90-something, um, really sort of revitalized that wor- word. He created all sorts of yokai manga, anime manga, uh, anime, uh, anime uh, series and, and yokai manga. Some of his anime are actually still in various series, still shown on, on Japanese television today. And that, in the post-war imagination, brought the yokai of the past, the sort of pre-war local figures, into contemporary uh, media forms. So that was a major way in which the word yokai became repopularized. And then in the 1980s um, and 1990s, it became more and more part of academic discourse as well, uh, particular um, anthropologist slash folklorist by the name of Komatsu Kazuhiko. Uh, started writing a great deal about yokai um, in his and in his re- his research was very accessible and that became sort of popular. Some manga artists took it from there. There have been some. Uh, uh, there's a guy named Kyogoku Natsuhiko, for example, who's a uh, wonderful sort of the I don't I don't want to say well to a certain extent the Stephen King of Japan, a very popular, <laughs> uh, but actually quite sophisticated and brilliant um, mystery writer. And every one of his uh, massive collection of, of stories focuses somehow on some kind of yokai that he's kind of historically dredged up from earlier documents. And he uses the word yokai. So so the word yokai huh. really in the last, I'd say since the late 80s into the 90s, and definitely now, especially with the emergence of, you mentioned Yokai Watch, this um, mm-hmm. sort of multi-platform game, really has become part of the contemporary imagination in Japan. So that uh, in my own personal experience, when I first started doing research on this um, around the year 1999, 2000, 
2001 in, in Japan, uh, people would say, what are you researching? And I would say, yokai. And they would give me a slightly blank stare until bakemono, <laughs> which is the other word. And then they would realize what I was it, the word came into focus for them. Um, a lot of right. Japanese can have different meanings, right? So um, right. now when I tell people that's what I've, I've done research on, they immediately know what I'm talking about. So there has been, even in my own personal interactions with people on the street, as it were, a kind of shift in perception with regard to the word. And the word yokai has become a kind of catch-all, academic-slash-popular word for this, this large realm of kind of um, – uh, ambiguous uh, right. kinds of things, you know. Fascinating. And now in this successful game with a global audience, we have Westerners introduced to the yokai realm, and that's how they're interacting with this whole idea even to begin with. Right, right. And, and you know, and, and as, a, as a Western uh, a word viable in Western culture as well, in my own personal experience, my, my first book uh, relating to yokai, which was a very academic book um, called Pandemonium and Parade, when uh, I... I wanted to use the word yokai in the first part of the title, but the publisher, an American publisher, said, well, I don't know, that might not be that attractive. People don't really know what it means. Uh, but the second book um, that you mentioned that, that I wrote, the, the Book of Yokai, which came out in, 20, I think, 2015, uh, the publisher said, you got to put the word yokai in the title because it's popular, right? So uh, <laughs> even in, in, in the Western context, in the English language context, there's been really a shift in perception uh, with the popularity of, of Yokai Watch and, and all these uh, and video games like Neo and, and other, other media formats. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Michael. We really appreciated having you. Oh, thank you, John. I've really enjoyed this. Yeah, me too. And and thank you for watching. Hopefully you enjoyed watching it as much as we enjoyed making the episode and having this discussion. Please consider giving us a like beneath the video and subscribing to the channel if you do not already. There is a website, historyrespawned.com, that combines our videos as well as our podcast, which can also be found through iTunes, Google Play and SoundCloud. Finally, if you want to support us and help us make more of these videos, you can help with a monthly donation of your choice at patreon.com slash history respond. Thanks, and we hope to see you again next time.